Hello, and welcome to 404 Podcast Found. I'm your host, Owen Godimer. This episode is brought to you by Coveros Training, offering expert training in Agile, DevOps, testing, and more. We'll have more on that later. For now, let's jump into the episode. Cheryl Hammond is a delivery lead at Pivotal and a major proponent of creating inclusive spaces. I recently sat down with Cheryl at a conference in Washington, D.C., and talked about invisible diversity, the benefits and potential drawbacks of user manuals, and why leaders need to actively build trust. The kinds of things that make our teams diverse aren't always things that we, the team, even know about that people have all kinds of different backgrounds and conditions, and there's lots of things that could be true about a person that are not visible. Um, I find that I learn these really interesting things about even my friends over the years that I hadn't known before about a, a history of trauma that they may have had or a medical condition that they're struggling with, and realizing that we could go for all these years without having any idea how these affect their lives and how it affects their ability to be fully present and deliver results in whatever teams they're in, I thought, well, what are the ways that a community creates the climate where someone who is struggling with something that they may not even want to share can still feel included, can still feel, you know, fully a member of the team? And so it inspired me to think back to teams where I've had different challenges and which things were most effective at making me feel welcome and how we might expand and scale those out to other teams. So the example that I use at the front of my talk is a picture of the venue from Agile 2018 in San Diego. And on one side of the picture, you can see stairs that lead to just a level change in the conference venue. And on the other side, there's a ramp. And what I discovered when I was there was that the ability to just have that hallway conversation, be walking and talking, and all I had to do was steer gently to the right and we'd be on this ramp that was a million times more comfortable for me and my bad knees. And then I didn't have to explain why laboring to get up the stairs is really awkward and I'm slower than everybody else. And, and it didn't interrupt the flow of our conversation. And so it made me feel like a first class citizen without this weird awkwardness that sometimes gets in the way of, of interacting fully with folks at the conference. I thought, what are the things we can do that create those just invisible choice points where somebody who has a special need can just gently direct in the, the ways that get them what they need without it having to be a big production. Um, because if you go to a venue where the stairs are in a different place, it is it becomes an interruption to the conversation. Oh, I can't use those stairs. Can we please go this other way that's inconvenient? And can we and it, it's noticeable. Um, sometimes that's okay, but it's just it's so nice when you don't have to. And so then I was thinking about like the, the friends that I've had in the past who would adjust their speed of walking to accommodate me without me noticing it versus people who meant really well but made a big deal of it. Oh, I see that you're much slower than me. Would you like me to slow down so you can? Yes, I would. Thank you. Right? You right. Know? Not necessary. And so I thought, what if we shared those things that in my experience have been really helpful and help teams to see that we can make this process seamless. And then my, my hypothesis about all of this is that as we become more mindful of allowing space for people to accommodate themselves, 
without judgment and without asking invasive questions. It should be something that creates a climate for those people with visible differences as well to feel welcome and to feel accommodated. And we should be able to create a space where a new person entering our team immediately gets the message that all are welcome here and we want you to be your best self. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's so cool. And I think that, mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the cool things and from a, a pro, even from a, a technical productivity point of view is that when people feel more comfortable mm -hmm. and they feel like they're part of something, then they are going to be more productive. They're gonna be higher energy, they're gonna be able to help the team more. Um, and taking those steps that maybe maybe to someone seems small, could be a, it could have a huge impact. Absolutely right. Uh, something that my, I, I work at Pivotal now, and something that my company's always been a real proponent of, we're known for um, advancing pair programming and working in pairs generally is something that we really value. But there's also been a lot written over the years about how pairing and mobbing in the wrong environments are exclusive of people, right? Can really leave people feeling shut out or unsafe. Um, if you're in an environment where you have a lack of psychological safety or you have real unequal relationships among people for whatever reason, those pairing relationships are not just less effective, they're also, sometimes they can be threatening or uncomfortable for somebody who's in that you know, lower social status or just doesn't feel respected by the process. And so then all of a sudden you've not only negated the benefits of pairing, but you've probably made things worse. And so the, the benefit of creating those relationships and building those strong teams allows you to then pursue these practices that we know throughout DevOps, throughout extreme programming, these are, you know, all of these essential collaborations that are really at the heart of Agile. So we have to have this foundation of psychological safety, which we talk about, but it needs to be a broader psychological safety that includes everyone. And those of us that are relatively privileged, and I would count myself as one of those, um, oftentimes there are things we miss. Um, it would never have occurred to me that a pair programming relationship would feel unsafe for someone with a particular history or background. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, oh God, what are we gonna do, right? How are we going to help lift folks up and make them feel more confident in those relationships? What are some strategies that we can use there? Because the idea is to get the best, you know, knowledge work, not just technical, but the, you know, the, the the design decisions, the product decisions, we want to get the very best out of everybody, which means we need everybody to be to feel free to bring their perspectives. We want the diverse teams because we think it drives a better result. We think that those other perspectives add value. So we don't want to just have tokens in the room for the sake of appearances who aren't then fully enabled to deliver the very best that they can. That's why we want everybody there. Yeah, uh, I think it's so important. We often hear about having, you know, I think there was a conversation when people were interested in bringing more diverse, more, more diversity onto teams, and it was it was that token, kind of that token idea. Right. And, and I think that the importance is is that everyone, even if they look the same, they sound the same, they 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 physically look like they're going to have the same abilities. They all have different stories and different experiences. That's right. Um, and I think that's so important. Uh, I, one of the things you touched on is psychological safety, and I and I think it's great. And I think one thing that I've loved talking to you about and hearing you talk about is actionable steps to create more psychological safety. I often hear, um, I'll go to a conference and people will say, "Oh yeah, once you have the psychologically safe culture, you can do these." Pra well, hold on, that that is, I mean, that is in my experience, the ninety-five percent. That was the hard part. <laughs> that, that, I, yes, I, I can read. I can read a book and learn how to do safe. Mm -hmm. I can I can read that. I can read right. a book and learn how to do code in Java. Yeah. The, the psychological safety, that's the right. part that I think I struggle with. I think a lot of people struggle with that part of it. And you have actionable steps that 
that you can that you've shared to help people get there. Absolutely. And I also want to throw in that there's a learning process that we're doing through having these conversations as a um, one of the techniques that I shared in the keynote at Agile DevOps West was about the, the concept of user manuals. And since I shared that concept, and my first exposure to it was when I joined my team at Pivotal. Um, not everybody in the Pivotal Corporation does it, but my team had an established practice of user manuals that I found just fantastic because um, the user manual is, in our case, we had created a list, uh, the team had created a list of, I think it was seven or eight questions that were um, nicely focused on like, what do you need to show up as your best at work? What do you need from us? And what, what make the best interactions for you as part of this team? So it was, it was really nicely crafted. They had done it at an offsite before I joined the team. And I got there and I said, oh, this is an opportunity for me to share as much or as little as I want, right? I can be as descriptive as I wish to be in this document, or I can just state the facts and keep it very simple. And I, I may or may not explain why. And it gives me a chance to feel folks out um, I immediately had access to the, all of the team's user manuals, so I had a gauge of what are the what's the nature of things that they feel safe to share, and that tells me a lot about what how they feel with each other. Um, and I thought it was a fantastic practice, so I recommend it. Um, I talk a little bit in my talk about how to get established doing user manuals, um, and what I learned after the conference was that there's some great debate happening. I, I go to Twitter for some good conversations about this stuff. Um, there's some good conversations about places where user manuals have been implemented in ways that weren't safe. And it occurred to me that if the questions aren't thoughtfully considered, if they're not focused on work relationships, um, or if you lack some fundamental safety to begin with in the organization, user manuals could just as easily be experienced as a weapon um, or could make your teams feel less safe. Um, they could be too prying, it could be too management directed, um, it might be too unequal. Uh, you know, I appreciated that my manager at Pivotal was very open and very vulnerable in his user manual and that the way he approached the things that I wrote in mine was in a very accepting way of how can I help and support. That's a rare quality. I'm really lucky to have the manager that I had. And if I had, um, if I could think back to less awesome managers that I've had in the past, I could imagine that the exact same document written the exact same way would have had the opposite effect. And so now I want us to have a more nuanced conversation about, okay, I said the word user manuals. That's a great buzzword. Please don't go out and just Google it and just drop them into your teams. I've seen well-intentioned initiatives like that go wrong. Um, and so we'll talk in the, the talk that I'm gonna give tomorrow is my sort of next version of same conversation and we're going to talk about how to have a little bit more refined approach to user manuals and some some do's and don'ts about how to implement those because you want to think with any of these techniques that are designed to to bring out things that people feel vulnerable about you want to make sure that you've got some prerequisites in place and that you're doing the work to create the safe climate before you implement some of these things that are that are on the edge of of inviting people to bring to come together it's so like you said, like, assume that you have great psychological safety already. Now you can, well, yes, yes. Now you can do pretty much anything you want. It's a lot like assume you have a perfect agile mindset. Yet DevOps works really well if you have that right. already. We have a whole week's worth of conference and you all have weeks worth of conferences where people come because they are struggling with the fact that that's hard. 
that that is the barrier. And so you're right, like that's 90% of what we're trying to get to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love the story about the user manual and, mm -hmm. and that made me click because when you were talking at Azure DevOps Plus, I was like, I love this. I want to bring this back to my team. Right. But I didn't think about how it could be used. I would hope that most people wouldn't use it right. in, in a way that would inhibit the team. But you, there are people absolutely that would use it in that way. Right. Um, I think one thing you touched on is kind of the leading by example. And you mentioned mm -hmm. that your manager was very vulnerable in, in yes. the user manual. And I think that, um, so do you want to talk a little bit about how when people are Especially top management, or, or, or from you know from the top down, when they are able to express their vulnerability right. and express their uh, their feelings and, and their needs, that it kind of opens up the door, possibly to the rest of the team, to feel safe enough to express their own uh, interests and absolutely. I, th I think that's really the key. And in my current work, I do a lot of work coaching middle leaders in organizations because we think that that frozen middle thing is is where we think there's so much of an impact to be made in enterprises that are trying to transform and something that I I think I've kind of personally experienced as well is a lot of our leaders get there because they've been a long time in their organizations or in their industries and have been, of course, they've risen through the ranks over time. Um, and I've had so many personal experiences with leaders and I've done this myself where we see ourselves as just this guy. But I'm still me. I'm, I'm still the person I was 10 years ago when I was just a developer, just a developer. And you should know, right, that my intent is pure and that I know where we came from and that I'm here to help the teams. And I've read all about servant leadership. I've got this thing down. And it really depends upon um, so much upon the organization and the relationships to, to determine, are you really just a peer? Are, you know, do you, do you have holacracy in your organization? Because if you don't, then you're probably not just a peer. You probably do have a measure of systemic control over things that matter to the people that report to you, like whether they have a job or how much they get paid. And as leaders, we have to be really mindful of that power differential. We didn't ask for it. We'd love to hand it back and say, no, no, I just want to be one of the guys, but with some more responsibility. And it doesn't work that way. There is a certain amount of we've, we're now separated from the team in ways that we have to take action to then remediate and get ourselves back to that place of trust. Um, I've seen many, many times in organizations where a very a well-intentioned person with manager in their title breezes through the team room and says, hey, I was using our mobile app the other day and I saw this thing. And the teams will take that as, oh my God, drop everything, kill the entire backlog. This thing goes in the emergency lane on the board. We need to put this one through because someone with manager or VP in their title said it. Sometimes the manager or VP meant for them to do that and are happy to use their power in that way. But I've seen an, at least an equal number of times where the manager or VP had absolutely no idea that their offhand remark was going to be taken the way that it ended up being taken. And then they come in and say, why is there so much backlog churn? <laughs> because we're not watching the effects of our words. And so I think there's, there's a bridge that we don't always even know that we need to try to, to create between the position that we've found ourselves in and the ways that we relate back to our teams. We have to know things like we're not in day-to-day -day with our teams anymore. We don't know what they're doing or how important the work is that they're doing right now. We don't know what we're disrupting when we seagull through their, their environment. And also that we 
we don't automatically have trust just because we mean well as leaders. We have to rebuild that actively by showing I'm not going to use anything you share with me against you in any way and I'm not going to ask you to do something that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. Right. So back to your point about role modeling. If it's a manager who has the intention of bringing user manuals to their teams, there are a couple of good ways to do this. And I would say my favorite way is don't take it to the team you lead. Take it to the team of your peers. Go to your manager meeting and say, we managers should have user manuals with each other. Let's show our vulnerability to each other and make sure that we're working together effectively. Um, if you're an adherent of Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team, he talks about how that's your first team anyway, and getting on the same page with those managers is the most valuable thing you can do as a leader. So now you get both benefits because you're going to strengthen that team and demonstrate the use of the user manuals in this really appropriate way. You can then work out all the kinks, share that with each other, make sure that you're Peer managers aren't going down and imposing it on their teams either. And now when you come to your team and say, hey, I've got this great idea, the, the next step is that you bring it to the teams and say, I'm just going to leave this here and walk away. Right? This is for you all. You don't have to share it with me. This is not about that. This is not a performance management technique. This is for you all to learn to work effectively. Why don't you go do it? And it's really tough as the manager who sat in the talk and listened to somebody explain how to use this and read all the blogs to leave it be and say, what if they do it wrong? And you've got to be able to let them do it wrong, let them do it their way. Um, and if it's rejected, that's an interesting learning for you. If they don't want to do it, I'd be very curious why and which problem did you think you were trying to solve and do they think they have that problem, right? So then you get a lot of learning opportunity off of it. So there's there's these ways you can you can approach it very sensitively that I think also just help build a better manager relationship and better better culture of how you of your stance with your team as a manager. Yeah, I think that. Uh, that's so important. I, I love the point about the inter-manager communication as well. Uh, I think that's so integral. I think a lot of teams, at least uh, teams that I've seen functioning, don't have that inter-manager. They, right. they feel like they're responsible for their team. They don't have the opportunity to speak with each other. And something that uh, my team has started to work on is having that inter-manager conversation. Nice. So I meet, we meet monthly. The, the All of the teams meet monthly. And then mm -hmm. I meet with some of the other managers that I'm working more closely with their teams. We're meeting every week to have those conversations, awesome. um, which I think has been an extremely effective tool for us. Um, one thing I have, uh, I want to talk about the user manuals. I know, I know mm -hmm. that's where the conversation has, has been right now is some, uh, sometimes I feel like, and I feel like other people might have this experience as well, where they have unwritten rules, um, where maybe yeah. they haven't actually written these down, yep. but they've, they, they kind of know like, this is how I should, this is how I should act or behave around these people. Um, do you see value in those unwritten rules and, and where do you think that putting them down on paper maybe adds more value to that dynamic between the team? It's a really interesting question. I think um, when you come into an environment that has a culture, right, the whole culture is oftentimes made up of all these unwritten rules. Um, something that I find interesting when I go into a new organization as a consultant is to look for where are the written down rules and the published stuff about our culture and values. And then do I see that in the speech? Do I hear it? Do I see it in the interactions um, on the floor with regular folks? 
because there are some organizations where those are very nicely in sync with each other. And there are others where the poster on the wall and the reality on the floor have nothing to do with each other. And those really tell you something about, tell you so many things about the organization because an organization that would go to the trouble of putting a thing on the wall that nobody believes and nobody does and would allow that fact to continue and would not take notice of it tells you lots of things about whether you have disconnects in that culture, um, what the top leaders think we ought to value versus what the reality on the ground is. And that's not going to be because individual contributors have some different opinion. It's going to be because their incentives do not match the words that come out of their leader's mouth. Individual contributors can't sabotage your whole mission in some very out of sync way for very long without being run out of the organization. So if they're still there and they're doing it continuously, you've got a system problem, it has nothing to do with those people. Right, so I think those kinds of things become interesting. I think the, the challenge that we have in having like team cultures where things are taken for granted and not written down, I think is we may not have explicitly really talked about is this practice something we're doing mindfully? Is it something that's working for us? If it doesn't work for us, what do we do? And we maybe aren't using, let's say, agile retrospectives in a way that could surface those conversations and allow us to experiment. Um, a challenge of those unwritten rules is that when you have somebody new coming in from outside of the culture, how do they figure out what those are except by trial and error, except by transgressing and finding out where the boundaries are? How do they have any kind of an impact on what those rules should be? If that rule doesn't work for them, who do they talk to? Right? It's just in the air. How do you talk to the air? And so you want to have, um, the more that you can make those things explicit, the more that you can inspect and adapt on them, which is really one of our core Agile values. Yeah, I think that's that's so great at having them, like being able to, like you said, look at them, have them on paper and say, you know, this is not working for me or, mm -hmm. or this is not working for the team and, and we've grown in, as a team in these ways. We've added mm -hmm. new members, we've lost members, and we need to shift this. And, and if you don't have those written down, how are you supposed to make that shift? So I think yeah. that's really, that, that, I mean, that is really, um, I think that's really important to have them written down. And, mm -hmm. and I think that people are gonna take that away and say, maybe we should, you know, because I, I know I have some kind of rules that I've discussed with peop, individuals on my team, not necessarily right. the team in general, that, you know, this is what works with them, this is what works for me. But we haven't written that down anywhere. Right. Uh, so like one example that comes to mind from a personal point of view is uh, after hours, I'm, I get off my computer, I don't check my email, I don't check, uh, nice. I don't check Slack, and, and, and my team knows that. Um, but I tell them, if you need me, call my cell phone. Because mm -hmm. if you call my cell phone, then I know that you need me to pick up my cell phone. Awesome. Yes. We don't have that written down anywhere, though. Mm -hmm. um, it, I've talked to the team about it, but I think that that's, it is something important in case we were to bring in a new team member to say, like, look, if you need Owen after hours, call him. He will answer for you. Yes. If it's not necessary to call him, don't call him. He'll deal with it in the morning. Yes, exactly. So. We had, um, in fact, that is one of the questions on my team's user manual. And so one of the things that my manager put in his user manual is, I am oftentimes awake at odd hours. I will send Slack messages and emails at very bizarre times. Please do not respond to them at those times. And then we have this opportunity to say, yes, if you need to interrupt me, use a DM in Slack. 
or send me a text message or you know whichever channel it is that's appropriate and we can we work in small enough teams that for a given engagement where I'm with two or three other people I can go review their user manual before the engagement and say check this one likes slack DMs this one likes text messages let's talk about whether we can standardize on one for the next 12 weeks no big deal and it's it's just a great conversation starter um, so it gives you a place to put something like that and I could imagine where there's going to be a lot of differences in if you have people on your team that have young kids right or that you know we have a culture at Pivotal where we tend to work core hours together but when we have a parent on the team who needs to go pick up their kid from school or is going home to take care of an older parent or something like that we we renegotiate those rules but we do that very explicitly right? so the um, my colleague Jenny Tarwater talks a lot about working agreements and has gotten that phrase into my vocabulary as well. And it really is, to me, the, the philosophy is that anything can be a working agreement. Um, we use that, I use that metaphor in my personal relationships in, with friends outside of tech is to just say, what are the, what are the conditions here? You know, so I have a I have a working agreement with a dear friend back at home that um, when we get together, we prefer to go to venues where there are gender neutral restrooms because uh, this is a friend who sometimes gets static for being in the wrong restroom and just doesn't need that kind of anxiety in their lives. So we just say, let's make sure we go somewhere where we can both be fully relaxed and be fully present and then we'll enjoy our time together. I would call that a working agreement and it adds so much value to our relationship. Yeah, I think that, and that, that I th almost came full circle there with that fully be, being in a, a situation where you and the team feels comfortable yeah. allows you to be present, allows you to fully engage and, and give your highest level of effort because you don't have these. I mean, I think a lot of people will always have the, the nagging in the background, no matter how comfortable you can make them feel and how comfortable right. they feel. Right. But the more comfortable we can make them feel. Exactly. The clearer their heads can be, the more productive they can be. Can we just remove one distraction? Can we remove one little fork that's poking at them and maybe they have others but we removed one and that's going to help and then where can we look for the others and, and try to make their experience more comfortable again it's, it's one less cognitive load and then that allows us to put a little bit more load on their creative brain to deliver what we want whether that's an awesome dinner with a friend or delivering really complicated code together as promised here is some more about Covero's training with Covero's training you learn what you need, no matter where you and your team are, with online instructor-led live virtual learning. Visit training.coveros.com to see upcoming classes in Agile, DevOps, test automation, and more. Plus, explore our volume discounts for groups and our private scheduling options. Coveros Training, learning delivered. We'd love to continue this conversation and more on the TechWell Hub. You can join our Slack community at hub.techwell.com. And remember to check out techwell.com to learn about our expert training, conferences, and communities for software professionals.